to bootstrap or not to bootstrap? That is the question. Is it better to build a business from the ground up without any outside funding or to take the VC's money and run? Hi, I'm Jason Andrew, Chartered Accountant, Business Owner and Financial Voyeurist, and this is Stark Naked Numbers. It's the podcast that strips down the numbers of business, investing, and wealth creation to help you become a better entrepreneur and investor and ultimately build your net worth. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Alex G from Tanda, a self-funded SaaS startup that has grown to eight figures of ARR. Alex and I will be debating the pros and cons of taking outside money. I actually think they're leaving money on the table by not doing it. All right, we're live. Alex, what's up? How you doing? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Okay, so I guess for the folks who don't know who you are, I'm going to replay your well, what I think is your backstory and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong or correct me where, where I'm off. How's that sound? Great. Okay, done. All right, Alex, uh, you're the co- you're a co-founder and CTO of Tanda. Uh, so, you guys are, a, as far as I understand, a B2B SaaS business founded in Brizzy, which is where I'm from as well. I think you started around the same time or a few years earlier from when we started SBO, uh, which was probably 2012, 2013. Yeah, 2012. Pretty sure you're, you're 2012. You're pretty sure you're... You're still bootstrapped um, and you started Tanda uh, from a pub at uni at QT, which is, uh, which is also where I went to and, uh, yeah, built the business from there, right? Is that that kind of? Yeah. Um, I think the only thing that really is not quite spot on, I guess, is that I'm not really CTO anymore. I, um, I, don't, have, I don't really have a title. I, I, can't, I, got, I have someone else who does that job much better than I ever did. So, I'm, right. Uh, <laughs> So you're just kind of like chilling. You're just kind of founder, just chill in the background. I don't know. If, yeah, I think chilling we can work with. I don't know if that's quite true. <laughs> it sounds good. So ten, mm. uh, that's what what ten, ten, like you do timesheets, right? That's just timesheet <laughs> software. Yeah, we do. Well, we do workforce management and a bunch of other stuff for places that people get paid by the hourly industries. There's a lot of complexity around ensuring that you are paying people correctly and there's, there's obviously awards for each industry and there's a lot of rules around how they're enforced and how to actually apply them and business owners don't understand any of this stuff because it's kind of it's not very easy and it's not really why you go into business so we've got some algorithms and some and a lot of software that sort of calculates this stuff for you so that you can ensure that everyone's being paid legally and fairly and on time yeah, cool. So it's kind of like a necessary compliance-driven. Oh, part of it's a lot of it's compliance, but it just helps to streamline business processes internally for small for small businesses. Is that like yeah? There's a profitability piece to all SaaS or to all the B two B software in theory, but I think the compliance piece is the main thing, right? It's yeah. like yeah, it's all well and good to run a profitable operation, but if Fair Work finds you or if you go to jail, it's not so good. So we're kind of trying to like help remove that risk. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's been pretty topical yeah, as of late with all these companies or big corporates underpaying staff. And I imagine you guys try to solve that problem. Yeah, it's it's really hard, right? And I think particularly when you get to like franchise style operations where it's kind of like the people who are doing the, who could be doing underpayments and not like franchisees and at a head office, you've got brand reputation to think about, but you don't really have control of the systems necessarily. So we try to help with those sorts of problems as well, where there's kind of like, Having systems in place is one thing. Having visibility is another, and then obviously, you know, not all too, not every system is equally good. Yeah, fair enough. And so, what's pretty unique about the Tanner journey is that you guys are I'm pretty sure 100 bootstrapped, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's four of you. Yeah, since day one. Since day one, like how, how much revenue you guys doing now? It's eight eight figures. Eight figures. So somewhere between you know like ten million and fifty million. Yeah, that's, yeah, somewhere around. Yeah, right. Somewhere between there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. That that's awesome. I mean, one of the one of the joys of being bootstrapped, right, is like you don't have to run your business based on what investors think. Or so we try to keep as much as we can to ourselves as a result. Because why not? Yeah. That that's awesome. That's that's amazing. I mean, like to grow a, a SaaS business to that scale with hundred mm. percent self funded, like that is a unicorn in itself. Like there are not many businesses like yours, at least in Australia, who have achieved that size of turnover how many staff you got now like you'd be 100 plus right worldwide i think we're around 150 145 somewhere yeah 150 like you you guys are an anomaly really when you look at the the tech scene in australia at least and probably globally there aren't many like bootstrap SaaS companies which i assume you're also profitable yeah yeah we are and i think like 
this if you read TechCrunch, you'd think that there's none. And I stopped reading TechCrunch because it's trash. But I think there's, <laughs> I kind of, there's there's more than you think, right? Like, but I think there's a lot of people who sort of don't really want to draw attention to themselves because, again, it's not really certainly when they're starting or even more so these days, I guess. There's like certainly a cultural belief within our little subculture that if you haven't raised money, then there's something wrong with you, which I think is not really well. It's obviously not true for us. Like we're kind of we're pretty happy with how things have worked out. Do, do you all the like bootstrap SaaS founders have like some Discord or a Slack channel that we all congregate and <laughs> like anti media uh, reclusive individuals? Because <laughs> um, if there is one, tell me and invite me, please. Um, I'd like to be I part mean, of it. Like, this conference that is like the micro conference <laughs> in the world. Although I think like the micro conf vibe is much more about like one person businesses, which I'm not really super into. And then there's I know there's yeah. one guy on LinkedIn called Greg Head. Yeah. He runs a blog a blog or a podcast, I guess, called Practical Founders, which is more along the lines of what we do, but he's like a former investment banker or something. He's very investment bankery, a bit too uh, for my tastes. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this and take it the wrong way. Well, if he's an investment banker, he's he's obviously curated that newsletter or blog to to attract folks like you for for deal flow, right? I mean, it sounds like well, his his whole thing is like he was on the other well, he was on the other side of the fence once and he's come around and just like Fuck working in P or working in VC more specifically just kind of sucked. So you kind of gone the other way. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a terrible metaphor. I think of it a little bit like stay at home parenting, where like there's lots of stay at home parents, but you kind of don't really see them because they're at home and they're not in the workforce and stuff. Yeah. So, but a lot of them struggle with people thinking that it's kind of a weird path or not the correct path or whatever. But obviously, it's totally valid and in fact, has many benefits. Yeah, I, absolutely. So, yeah, and I can see yeah, it. Like, that's kind of how we think. Well, just be, it's, it's uncommon and therefore people think it's weird, right? And But I can yeah. see- But the people who do it rave about it. Do take money? Well, no, people who do like, who, who bootstrap oh, okay. or yeah. to push my metaphor, who stay at home parent, like tend to think it's really good. Like they're pretty happy with their choice. Yeah. Even if no one else is kind of- aware of it or well, if no one else thinks it's good, doesn't make Yeah, money. for sure. And, and um, I bet like you get- VCs sliding into your DMs daily asking whether you would take money or take their money or raise capital, et cetera, right? I mean, maybe Jake still does. I tend to get it less these days since I've <laughs> continuously said how useless they are <laughs> in public forums. Um, <laughs> that might be a contributing factor. But like, yes, we get, actually, these because I think we're sort of in a more mature phase now, it's a lot more like PE or... Um, I don't know. I'm not really sure what the, what the right word for it is, but kind of like investment funds that want to like hold forever sort of thing. Not permanent capital. Yeah, right. As opposed to like early stage growth, which we're well and truly behind or went past that point. Yeah, which which is an interesting one because like, so um, what was the decision process to not take money? Uh, like there, there would have been a path. We, I'm sure you've mulled over many times, right? We're like, oh, this is quite difficult. We could just raise a check and make this a bit easier for ourselves. Yeah, I think also to your point about mulling it over constantly, I think that's a healthy thing to do. Well, not maybe not constantly, but like you never want to make pick, make a decision and then not reconsider it ever in 10 years. Maybe your experience was different, but the vibe I got was like the fundraising landscape, such that it was, wasn't very exciting. Well, it didn't exist. Like what, what exists in 2012? Like, I mean, there was like one or two angels and so on, but there wasn't really a lot of options, right? And I guess we just kind of, I think it started off with like, oh, you know, if, if some if we meet someone we like and we get a deal we like, sure. And then it just kind of didn't actively seek it and then it never found us. And then eventually we just kind of got a more bold position of like, what's the point? If, you know, we got a bit more confident in, I guess, in what was working. But I don't think we, like on day one, the founding principle of the company was not necessarily, bridge, or at least it wasn't something we consciously agreed on and all explicitly talked about. It just kind of happened. and then. Once things were working out, we just we got like we got offers that were just like, you know, you could raise fifty grand to sell ten percent of the company. <laughs> when we had like, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but when we had like tens of thousands of dollars of MRR, and it's like we could just wait three months. Yeah, and exactly. Then I'm, we wouldn't. No, yeah. Like, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. So, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll make that in profit next month or maybe two months' time. Like, why, why well, would I take that? I'm deal? not sure about profit back then, but certainly like the cash will come. <laughs> and so it was just like I don't know. I think the other part of it, and this is probably something that I suspect lots of people struggle with, but don't want to admit, 
is we were very conscious that we wouldn't really, we had a feeling we wouldn't really use the money very well. Like, I wouldn't say we've had a really well structured and systematic sales machine the whole time we've existed. We've had one for the last, I don't know, we've had one for like five years probably in Australia. But in the first two years, as our first four years, our sales process was very haphazard. And I think we sort of probably, I mean, not we, I think Jake had the wisdom to realize that if we just poured in like, I don't know, 10 salespeople worth of cash onto the top, it probably wouldn't have really done anything because they wouldn't have been a good process for them if we also had to rush in hiring and stuff like that. So it's not free forever. And you actually should use it well. And if you don't know how to use it well, then it's probably not a good idea to use it. Yeah, that's such a good point because I think when, you, when you're doing early stage investing, there's, there's usually two paths. It's, it's usually not about the go-to-market strategy or even getting sales or you know, adding fuel to a, a, to a predictable customer acquisition strategy. Usually it's, hey, we need to build up product and features because our customers are asking for it or we, we, want, we want to do this. But, but then that's an excuse as well sometimes because like, well, you, could, you have the capability to do that already, arguably in-house. It might take you longer, might take you 18 months instead of, you know, potentially six months if you had the A team, you know, or you could, if you had 10x developers um, in your on your payroll. But you know, I think the argument's more about speed to market, right? Less opposed to fueling growth. Well, I think in our case, by the time anyone was willing to talk to us, like we were 21 year olds, so we looked like idiots. So by the time anyone was willing to talk to us who had real money, we already had built a product. Yeah. And of course, like, and I think, but again, like, I mean, lots of people try to raise money at that point what they end up doing is adding a lot of um, breadth to their product instead of depth because they have so many people. They have like lots of people that they hide. But I think depth in the early stages is more important than breadth. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of, I, I, I think what worked well for us was being very, very scrappy and thus really having to be disciplined about only building the most important thing. And like these days, that's a big challenge. It's pretty hard to do that when you kind of have, not infinite resource, but it feels pretty infinite compared to 10 years ago. Yeah, definitely. From where I'm sitting, we've got a lot more options, a lot more stuff we can do. Oh, well, like 10 years ago, put put, put this way, back in 2012, like Rowan, I think he, I met Rowan at at uni and he was, Rowan's my business partner for for the folks listening. He's an accountant. He he quit his job. I went traveling for a year. I came back and caught up with Rowan. He was like, oh, I quit my job as an accountant. I'm doing a tech startup. And I was like, what the fuck's a tech startup? Like, what? what, what? <laughs> like, what is this thing? Yeah. And then s- suddenly I think Uber came out like a couple of years later and then everyone was seen to be a startup and everyone was exactly. So, it was just a different, it was just not even a thing. Like, when you say, like, are you doing like a startup business? Uh, are you like this new, what, this technology? Is this, like, what, are you building an app? Like, what, huh? Like, are you just made, it was not even the vocabulary at the time. I think that was why it was such a good time to do it because it's kind of like, it's pretty easy to just get caught into the bubble of what you're doing with anything, right? It'd be like, I'm an entrepreneur, but everyone just thinks you're silly for not getting a guy job at Deloitte. Yeah, and I guess that would have been a very easy option for you guys, like just to, to follow the traditional path. Um, so, I mean, really, yeah, well, it's there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's what most people did after you go to uni, you get a job at a big four or a consulting firm or whatever. Um, so, like, I, you know, the whole thing about, taking money versus bootstrapping is a really interesting debate because I think a lot of people take it's, – it's quite polarizing the discussion. There's like the pro bootstrappers mm. like uh, DHH, the guys from Basecamp, they're like, I can never take any people's money. Well, I think they took to uh, they took an angel check from Jeff Bezos earlier on. There's like, there's the biggest mistake mm. of our life. Never like, take anyone's money unless it's the richest person in the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they're pro bootstrapping. I, mean, I would do that too. And then the other end, it's like, well, you'd be stupid not to take money, right? Like, you'd be, like why, why not? People throw money at you at crazy valuations. Why not just take the cash and make your life easier? So, like, I'm keen to have this, like, have this debate with you and maybe I'll play the pro VC or pro funding hat and you you just be you <laughs> being the bootstrapper so like <laughs> I, I think i remember that I, I listened to a podcast I remember listening to a podcast with toby is it a Lutka? toby that guy from shopify right the founder of shopify that yeah. i think is german or dutch or whatever but like i remember they shopify was bootstrapped for the longest time and back in in some you know in canada um somewhere in canada some small town and then i think they, they started to get traction they built a product they had an mvp <laughs> i think it's the capital of canada 
Really? Yeah. Whatever, wherever that <laughs> yeah, is. I don't know. Where is it? Vancouver. Yeah, I think you can still say that safely. Somewhere. Um, somewhere in Canada. It's just that. It's like, it's like the, the North American Australia is pretty much Canada. Um, but basically, he he took you know they bootstrapped it, and I think it like got twelve staff or something. They, I think they, I think XL or one of the VCs wrote a wrote a check into them to help accelerate growth, right? And he, I remember in the podcast, he, he was saying that like. It was a big decision for them. It's like, do we stay this like, you know, bootstrap company, or do we take investor money? Because he, his, he was always. I think he, I think Shopify spun out of the story of him running a scope snow be, uh, sorry, a snow um, store rental or a merchant shop, right? And so he yeah, built the yeah. built the, the the rails off off trying to solve his own merchant problem. Um, and so he took the money and looked back as like, yeah, we should have raised earlier. Like we we just got so much more done. We scaled way bigger than we could have ha- have done if we didn't take any money. And one of his regrets is like, we should have just taken a lot more money because they, they worked out their year of economics of like CAC 12 TV and it worked out, well, I, if I put $1,000 in Facebook ads, like that turns out, you know, $10,000 of LTV, like that makes sense. Why don't we just accelerate that? And, and then they'll find out oh, and that national yeah. is amazing. Like what's, what's your take on that? Well, um, I think the first thing is it's like, I think you'll be very naive to take the absolutist argument on anything, but particularly on this. Like, clearly, there are people who have built businesses that are, that they're pretty happy with that have taken every path. Yeah. So, like, clearly, there's no correct answer. Well, like, there's no, there's no universal truth about what's correct for everybody. Obviously. Um, that said, I think like how we broadly think about it, and something we have thanks things thought. I think we've thought about it for a long time. Is if you are taking someone else's money, then obviously, eventually, they have to make it back somehow. And broadly, that's typically done by selling the company or by listing it. We've always, I think, been a bit skeptical of like why you'd want to build a company to then sell it. Because, I mean, we started in our 20s. And unless you want to retire when you're 30 and then be bored for 50 years, you've got to have something worth it, like interesting to work on. And it seemed to, and, and we've done this for a long time, we've kind of realized that it's pretty fun working with people that we like and with the team we get to hire. And, something to get to mold in sort of based on how we like to work so i think you kind of risk a lot when you have to sell because you may have to you may lose all that and you may get you'll get a big paycheck for it sure but it might not be as good in the long run obviously toby's still running top five so there's exceptions even to that and he seems like he's done very well for himself i think he really likes running the public company i think he likes being very big i don't think that i would like running a public company I think I kind of like having 150 people and I don't really want to have too many more. Whereas I think he like really likes having thousands of people and trying to hire a thousand people a year and stuff like that. I've never met him, but this is just my impression of it. I, I think like the argument of like, why wouldn't you take money if it's there certainly makes sense in boom times when valuations never go down. But as we're seeing now, a trouble price share price has probably dropped like 80% since that interview. And so I wonder if he still feels as good about his choices. Maybe he does. I, I mean, he's he's got his bag anyway, so he probably doesn't. Care. <laughs> yeah, he's goes not. Like, yeah, it's not. It's not as. It's not like black and white, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think I think the counter argument to that is, well, he he's probably not building. I mean, he's a public CEO now. He's still probably got some. Uh, still probably a chunk of his net worth tied up in Shopify, but he's, you know, he's got enough personally where he can sleep at night and not have to worry about money probably for the rest of his life. But he views as like, well, Shopify is an entity now and I'll, and I'll continue to run that for the rest of my life because it is still, it's an infinite, it's an infinite game. I'll just keep playing the game and, and, and doing what I love. I just, just a grander scale. Yeah. The infinite game stuff, I agree with. Like I've heard him about that and I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I think the, the outcome we can all agree on, but the path to getting there is probably going to be different for everyone. Yeah. But yep. yeah, I don't know. I think it's, as, as I said, it's like very easy to try to take an absolute position on this without knowing. Like, but I think what you should figure out is what works for you and what your circumstances are and what you want, what you want out of life, which admittedly is a pretty hard question to answer, particularly if someone's offering you a million bucks. Yeah. Or, or, or $50 million. Um, and you know, which, yeah, which is more likely the case. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, so it really comes down to who you partner with and what does that trajectory look like for the record, being a CEO of a public company is my worst fucking nightmare. Like I could not, it sounds horrible. Like you just, if you like politics and dealing with the mob, like if you do like dealing with idiot retail investors and like, you know, doing roadshows and stuff and just spending all your time on governance and, 
stuff as opposed mm. to leading a company and building a, a great business or product like you know i get the vibe he's got someone else who he's hired to do a lot of that stuff yeah. but i don't think it entirely goes away yeah well can't i mean you're, you're the head honcho yeah the other i guess like the other thing that makes this debate kind of i don't know hard is the honest answer probably is like if they hadn't taken money they would have still been successful yeah and a different version of success and maybe in a different timeline and stuff yeah. but like they would have still built like a, a very good online store builder better than anybody else and e-commerce would have kept growing so it's kind of like any that's path true probably worked out and, and the same for us like i suspect if we took money we would have found a way to make it worse work and it would have been successful if we've worked hard enough i'd have i suspect i think i don't really know yeah i, I think i think that, i think that's that's fair that's a fair comment but at the same time you know it I think big commerce is probably the second com- largest compared to um, to Shopify. There's like Wix and all that sort of stuff as well. So, like the argument for taking money is that you just scale so quickly that you outpace your competitors. So if you look if you look at tenders, like who who would be your direct comparable competitor uh, in your space? Um, deputy in Australia, there's like there's there's deputy and there's a bunch of others, but there's a lot of consolidation happening in the market. Yeah, so. A lot of acquisition, a lot of um I think there'll probably be like one or two big players in a few years' time. Yeah. Of which we'll be one. You'll be one of them. And hopefully um, hopefully I'm 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 actually yeah. betting on you buying all of them. I'm betting on you guys consolidating everyone. Mm. But like so Dep- let's use deputy we'll um, <laughs> I, I see so deputies, for example, I've just bring up found this AFR article. So they raised like hundred million. So yeah, hundred eleven million dollars Series B valued at four hundred mil. I think at that time, look to their revenue. Revenue grew to 40, 50 mil in twenty nineteen. So they're doing fifty mil. I assume ARR in twenty nineteen. So they're probably yeah. grown a bit since then, maybe fifteen twenty percent. So let's just say they're doing sixty seventy mil. Like and like. So your competitor raises a hundred million dollars. They've just got all this firepower now. How do you? As a bootstrap company, where you're, I assume, much smaller than that, how do, you, how do you respond to that? But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Are you tired of traditional accounting firms that only focus on tax and compliance, looking for a financial partner that can go beyond the numbers and reveal the story those numbers are telling? SBO Financial aren't your typical business accountants. We're your dedicated financial management team empowering you to take control of your finances and gain clarity and confidence in your business. Sure, it will keep your books in order and file your taxes, but unlike traditional firms, we'll also go beyond financial hygiene to give you the forward-looking insights and strategies you need to grow your cash and profitability. Picture this, a team of chartered accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers, payroll specialists, and financial analysts all working together to help you grow your business. With SBO, you gain access to a collective team of experts and specialists, providing you with proactive advice and analysis. So don't settle for reactive advice. Stop looking backwards and start looking forwards with SBO Financial, your partner in financial management and growth. Visit our website or contact us today for a free financial health check at sbo.financial. I, well, I mean, we didn't, when it actually happened, we were just kind of like, you know, I think we could we could stress about it and we could worry about it or we could focus on the things we can control and accept the things we can't. And I think, you know, it's it's a pretty big world out there. It would be, given that they raised from American VCs, it's unlikely that they would mostly focus on winning the Australian market. Yeah. And we were also trying to go overseas as well. But I just, I, I don't know, I, in my experience, we haven't really come across them very much outside Australia. So I suspect that they've probably done, they've probably tried to, tried to launch in other countries and probably haven't had very much luck at from what I've seen, it hasn't really gone too well. It's pretty hard to get. It's pretty hard to be in more than one country doing a compliance product. Yeah. So, sorry, just to circle back on your last point, you can you can raise a lot of money and, yeah, it can accelerate things if you spend it right. But I don't know that I don't know that if that being able to raise money means that you automatically become good at spending money as well. Yeah. So it really it depends what you do with it. But we've always like prided ourselves on our on our fish on our capital efficiency and our ability to do a lot with with little resources and I think like in the global workforce management wars <laughs> to one thing <laughs> to the extent that they are, there is such a thing yeah. is that is that just like we, pin, we've done is that just, pinned to your bedroom is like we are in war no, we are in battle every morning we need to fight these guys I like, think it can... might be in Tasman. But it's not <laughs> <laughs> um, to the extent that that's a thing I don't think it's really 
been a primary concern of how much war chest everyone has more like going through me it's it's more like how much we can do with the resources that we have yeah how we can do that more effectively over time and, and that's ingrained in the bootstrappers mindset i imagine like you have you had to be frugal from day zero be, right yeah. because you have no other option um to to join yeah well i think there's I, I agree with you to start i think a misconception that we had about it actually is that you have to be depends how you define frugal right i think something we defined incorrectly as frugal we ended up just being like we ended up paying people probably not as much as we shouldn't. And it got to the point where it was pretty bad, let's call it five, six years ago, where we were kind of starting to get a reputation where it was like a good place to start your career, but maybe you won't get paid so much as other places in other places in town. This was specifically within the dev team. Yep. And now we've sort of like gone re, re we've thought a lot about how to do that how that should be done. And now we've got a reputation as like a place to, where you'll go get paid close to top of market if you do good work which I think is a much better reputation to have. It makes me sleep better at night. And it means we attract, a bit, we attract better talent. For sure. So, now, like, so I, think there's, I think when you say be frugal, it's easy to interpret that as be stingy, yeah. which is really not the intended meaning. I, I don't think it's what you were saying, but I think that's like a misconception or a mistake that we made for a long time. It's, called, it's sort of conflating the two. Um, and we've sort of gotten a bit better at like, you know, figuring out what isn't worth spending money on, which is most things. But then the things that are worth spending money on and worth spending lots on, like actually being able and willing to do that. Um, and you get better at doing that by saying no to more stuff and being really focused on just the things that really matter. Yeah, and that, that, that's great because it comes back down to a capital allocation decision, right? We have we have limited capital. How do we maximize the return on that in those dollars um, yeah. for, for forever, basically? And I think that's a, a very... Yeah, you're, and you're uh, always making that decision. Yeah, and that's a muscle that... That takes time. I was talking to people about this. Like, there's a lot of, you know, there's all these startups who have raised buckloads of money and who are just burning, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year, right? And the CEOs are like, "That's mm. cool. This is an intentional strategy because we've got the economics to write to, to work, right? We've got the unit economics to, you know, we invest a dollar in in mm. acquisition, we get three dollars on the other side. That's great. Um, but they never seem to be ever be close to hitting some cash flow break even on a profitability perspective but the narrative is always that's cool all of this spend we're doing is intentional right because we're building value and that this is discretionary spend so in theory if i turn off my sales and marketing tap i go from burning a hundred million dollars a year to making 50 million dollars a year i I, but we haven't seen that everyone knows that's rubbish i know it's bullshit isn't it no one's I mean, if you haven't done that in the last six months, then you're <laughs> so, probably never going to do and it. And that's right? the thing, right? Because and I think getting to profitability, I've had a few low conversations about this recently because it is very topical with a lot of our clients and just people in the market. Like building a profitable business is actually a muscle. It's not like you go, the, it's not like you, it's like a flick of the switch that, hey, I'm suddenly profitable. Great. Yeah. Um, you have to work for it. You, it's actually etched into the culture of how you run and operate the business. And it's like going to the gym. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're going to build the muscle and flex and, and contract those those muscles to, to build to build up that, that stamina within the company. That's kind of an interesting point because I think like, when you're going from, I mean, we this was our first business. This for, for some of us, this is our first job. So it's kind of there's a lot of muscles to develop, right? Like I'm working on a piece I'm writing at the moment about things we've learned hosting up, like running the web app on the internet, and sort of scaling it up over 11 years. And like we, I've learned a lot in that time I didn't know beforehand. So there's a lot of muscle you're developing. And so I can get the, I can certainly understand the appeal of like having one less muscle to worry about or like having one less thing that you also have to learn while you're also learning how to deal with customers and how to scale your pro- and how to like prioritize your product or whatever other things that you're learning. I get why people want to do that, but I think it's kind of, you know, I think you may as well try to develop every muscle you can if you can. Well, for, yeah, for 100%. I mean, like, you know, I'm biased to say this, but every, every founder should, should be, Better than uh, looking at knowing their business better than their accountant, which isn't actually the, tr- the case for a lot of founders. They a lot of them be surprised at lack of financial literacy amongst most bu- business owners. They, you know, it's shocking. But yeah. anyway, um, I'm not surprised. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the numbers. So there are four of you, all of you equal co-founders or on mm-hmm. the cap table. Um, so do you, how do you make decisions about money? You mean like what we're like how we get paid or like what projects we're going to do both everything like how okay we'll start with like hey we want to hire these people like how, how do you <laughs> who, who, okay, who says sure. yes or who says no how, how, how do you make decisions about that well 
most hires and stuff like that. I mean, we have a we have a pretty rigorous budgeting process. Yeah. So we have a lot of like, just team leads in every country and all these other levels who each have their own budgets. And so it's pretty rare for like a hiring decision, for example, to come to our level. Um, mostly it's happening at some sort of level where we're just trying to like manage, manage that through spreadsheets or through a budget basically. But it's that, so then how does the budgeting process happen? Well, we always, it tends to change fairly often as we kind of learn more about the business. But broadly speaking, we always set aside a certain chunk which we want to put towards product development. And then we, which is, which is always around 20% of revenue. And then we kind of split the rest between countries. Um, usually like broadly based on where I, where the biggest opportunity is, I guess. Um, and so that changes over time, both in terms of like how well the opportunity is going and kind of what our perception of the opportunity is. But like not, we're in three countries, Australia, the US and the UK, and not every country is equally profitable because we've been in Australia for a lot longer than the rest. It's been more mature and established. So from the last little while, we've sort of been like loosely subsidizing the other countries, but the other countries are probably going to break even pretty soon. So then every country will be generating its own cash and, and self-sufficient. And then I guess the management decision will move to more towards like where do we want to really go big and when we're going to put ex- excess cash into. But these things sort of change all the time and you, know, you get a big customer in one market and sort of your fortunes change overnight or you get a global pandemic or whatever. Hopefully not too many of those. But yeah, so to answer your question, I think we try pretty hard to push most, like almost all decision making down to at least a country level. Yep. And then kind of talk to all the country leagues at least once a month and give them input, but try to not overstep that budget as best we can. We don't always get it right, but that's what we try to do. Yeah, that's a pretty mature way to run a run a business, um, which is like, did you just, how did you develop those skills? Did you get, uh, do you have an advisory board or something to help you put that together? Or is it just like, oh, I read a textbook on corporate budgeting and we followed that I'd framework? I'd have to ask Josh, but I think like it became pretty obvious pretty quickly once we were in more than one country that we couldn't actually well, most specifically, it's basically in, like we have, we have an office culture. We have offices in every country. Everyone works together in person. It's more or less impossible to make good HR decisions remotely if everybody else is working in person. Yeah. Like it's, those two things are so contrary. So it became pretty obvious as soon as we, like some of us moved to the States, that we couldn't really make useful decisions about who does what in the UK. And we would just be like really just going off gut feel or biases or things that weren't very good so i think that led us pretty quickly to like okay we need some sort of global like global process that pushes responsibility back down to the local level yeah it's basically like the u.s concept of federalism applied to our company gotcha but yeah yeah exactly where the structure came from i don't know it's constantly evolving it's really just like we tweak it a little bit every few months and hope that it, hope that it works all right yeah, decentralized uh, as much as possible. Uh, let let people take ownership, which is which is perfect. And so, like in terms of salaries, like I imagine in the early days of starting Tanda, you're all uni students, so you're probably used to living off nothing. Um, but like, how, yeah. how did you feed yourself? How did you pay rent? Um, and uh, and then also balance that with investing enough money back into into the business and hiring folks. Yeah, so we didn't really hire anyone for the first two years. Maybe, maybe 18 months-ish, something like that. That helped yeah. a lot. But we all had like, when we started, we all had like some sort of other part-time job or something else that was bringing in a little bit of, of cash so enough to break even on. Yeah. Um, the ideal balance of like not needing to do that much work but bringing in enough cash to live. And we all had a little bit of savings. Like I think after we had the most savings, I had like 10 grand in the bank because I'd worked for a year at a software company. So Wait, you had a software company before Tanda? No, I, I worked at another one. Oh, you worked at one. Okay, like I, had, gotcha. I had like a job while I had a job while I was at uni. So I, all the stuff, all the coding I learned at uni was ah, okay. had a job. Gotcha. But yeah, like I guess, so I guess my burn rate was burning through that ten grand of savings. And once we did that, I would run out of money. Um, but then between that and like I was working part time at uni doing some tutoring, I was able to stretch that out over like a few years. So we all basically had some version of that. Um, and we started I think we started paying ourselves oh, I looked this up a little while ago I think because you asked me and it must have been like two and two two and a half years in we started paying ourselves 
like I think ten grand a year from memory. <laughs> okay, that, 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 maybe that's you remember from when I wrote it down. I don't know. Yeah, I remember. But, so there was a there's a there's a photo that floats around the internet. I think I think Jake or one of the other guys mm, posted the, the well, one of the uh, the pots and the yeah. baked beans and rice or something. It looked. <laughs> disgusting it wasn't very good but we had like one dollar meals <laughs> one dollar meals so what was it like rice and oh okay either. it's it's rice um mince tomato baked beans and i think there's like one more ingredient it might be like some sort of i think chili sauce or something and we really just like put it all in a big pot <laughs> and then like the plastic containers and then, yeah, if you which, buy, you, which you stole from the, the local Chinese restaurant or something. You, you know, you're spending oh, money on containers. I think we bought those actually, but we, <laughs> we used them a lot. We didn't get our money Um, yeah, that wasn't very tasty, but like it had all the how the food groups. So <laughs> yeah, the pyramid, the pyramid of health. Yeah. So that, yeah, so that was basically your equivalent of ramen for for the two and a half years <laughs> grinding and building a startup. We realized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say we ate it every day, but it definitely happened. Uh, um, it's so good. But yeah, like eventually we sort of converged on paying ourselves, I think, two percent of revenue, and we've just sort of stuck with that basically ever since. Oh. So sorry. So two two percent of your revenue is your salary. Yeah, for the four of us each. Sorry, each. 2%. so two two percent each of MRR is yes. your salary each. Oh, okay. So how'd you come yes. up with two percent? Yeah. Like why not like five percent or? Well, I think we just constantly were arguing about how much we were paying ourselves because it wasn't very much. And one day, so I don't I don't remember exactly how the conversation went down, but broadly, it was like it's stupid every three months trying to like argue about our pay and pick a new pay rate. Let's just make it a percentage so that it constantly is growing a little bit and we've got an incentive to make it grow quicker. Um, and what I think at the time, we were, what we had paid ourselves the last month had been around 2% of the MRR. So we just were like, okay, let's take the current percentage and extrapolate it forwards forever. And uh, yeah, that's worked out pretty well. Yeah, that's cool. I say you still follow that, that framework today. Yeah. So that I think that probably surpassed I guess what we would have earned if we'd gone and gotten jobs and progressed through our careers. I mean, depend, depending on the job and for each of us, what we went and did and so forth. But I think probably two years ago, maybe three years ago, kind of overtook that line. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. For cool. a long time, it was definitely not a very big number. Yeah, but you're building, but you're you're building equity value in in the in a, in a tech company, which is as 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 yeah, we all know, was well, far far one. far more valuable sure. than the salary that you draw, right? Well, it's valuable on paper. Yeah. Well, yes, that, that's a good point. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, more experienced financial engineers can probably work out what to do with it. But my risk appetite is actually really low for those sorts of things. So to me, it's always just been like only valuable on paper. Yeah. Like I don't really want to go get a margin loan against it. Yeah. And yeah. These these days, obviously, if I got a margin loan a year ago, it would have been the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> so yeah, you you'd probably squeeze out. Yeah, you'd be squeezed out of your cap table yeah. probably with a call and some some random exactly. shark would be on your so, uh, on the board. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. <laughs> so like the equity is maybe it will be worth something in liquid one day. I don't know, but I think for us the mindset quickly became like let's make it worth doing despite that. Yeah. Yeah, and talking talk about to working toward that. Yeah, and talk about options. Like again, funded startups, you typically have like an ESOP program or you know employee share mm-hmm. scheme program to give to like key management staff so they don't piss off and you know steal all your all the great work that they've done or go to a competitor, etc. Like obviously, yeah. you guys don't have that mechanism given that you're all hundred percent owners. Like how do, how do you build that incentive structure within Tanda? Yeah, so. I think there's probably like two phases of our company history broadly for this question. Phase one is kind of, well, maybe three. The first phase was kind of the really early years where like we were hiring our friends out of uni, but we were kind of hiring the friends who for whatever reason couldn't go get like a good grad job. Maybe it's just because they weren't really like very interested in so it. Or like delinquents basically. Just like, yeah, like people, unemployable like, people like us. <laughs> well, like marginally employable people. Um, and it was really just like at that point, like, I don't know. I think people felt bad asking for options when I was earning 10 grand a year. But <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just an exaggeration. Anyway, it wasn't really an It was like, it was more just it, it, for a while, we, it was still kind of just funny that we all worked together. And that was kind of enough. Yeah. Then we started to professionalize, but not fully. And I think there was a fair bit of tension around 
for a few years around this whole topic and we, were, we stood we stuck to our guns of like we don't have an exit plan and so we don't want to create the complexity but we want to pay people well and we kind of very gradually were able to do that probably not as quickly as some people would have liked and so i don't know some people who've worked here in the past maybe didn't get quite the outcome they were hoping for but I don't, know, they, I don't think we were ever dishonest about our plans. We just maybe didn't move as quickly as people hoped. And then I think the third phase, which is where we're in now, it's been in for quite for a few years now, is just the we just want to like for people who've been around for a little while, who are very senior or whatever, we just pay them very very well. And it's like our intent is th- through base salaries and through like bonus structures or whatever is appropriate to their role we would rather just have them the equivalent of whatever theoretical earnings there might be, but in just a liquid cash sense. And obviously, like, it's hard to do a like-flight comparison there because it's kind of comparing a known to an unknown. But broadly speaking, I think if people who would do well under an option scheme are also just doing well under a salaried scheme, then miraculously, no one complains anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think uh, given that and also the timing of it, cause it really takes that gaming, the game theory out of the equation for the for the employees as well. Like I think everyone agree, well, like I like cash. Like if you if I was incentivized based on cash bonuses as an employee, that'd be a really great outcome yeah. for me. Uh, the issue with issuing options, like it's all paper-based as well and it's, it's not really worth anything until there's a liquidity event or maybe there's an yeah. opportunity. If you're if you're a Canva or Atlassian, yeah, there's, there's potential for secondaries. But um, for most people, it's like, I don't know how much this is worth. Uh, my accountant says it might be worth this. The last valuation is X. But um, anyone, any employee that re- received ESOP in the last two years at a big tech company, like they're all that's all worthless, like in my view. Like mm. evaluate because they, they got gifted options at, at, at peak val. Like they're 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 not in the money anymore, and they probably won't will never be for for another decade. So for those guys, yeah. uh, that they're, they're largely screwed. Um, like in hopefully terms of they figure. took a, a good enough salary that it doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, but I think there's a lot of survivorship bias around this. Like obviously there are people who do very well through option schemes, and who aren't founders. I my gut feeling is I've never really, I don't think I've met many people who are able to pick which companies to work at based on the fact that options will do well. As like, you know, I, I think it's basically I think there's a lot of luck, which is which is fine. Like, like luck happens, right? But I don't think it's a good way of structuring your affairs. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that the options should be really be the kicker, not the reason why you choose to work at a company, unless you have some sort of edge or insight into why you think this company will be, be liquid or will five yeah. x, you know, in, in over your tenure yeah. uh, or your vesting. Sure. Yeah, but that's not as common as people think it is. No, it was particularly on Australia. Like I wouldn't, th- I know, I can't think of a handful of startups would that potentially. Um, give you those kind of venture style gains as an employee through ESOP anyway. There's um, always some, but like obviously no one talks about the losses because they're not as exciting. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. There's plenty of companies where options are literally worth zero now and like hopefully people, I mean, I honestly do hope that people got a decent salary out of it as well. Otherwise, it's kind of, I mean, it's a decision they made, but it still kind of sucks. Yeah, that, that sucks for them. Um Rip. Um, so yeah, so you, so you mentioned your profile. You're very compassionate, Jason. Uh, I'm just fairly. I'm fairly. Yeah, exactly. My my EQ is uh, sometimes lacking <laughs> when it comes to this sort of stuff. It's rare that I'm on a video video call with someone and I'm the one with the high EQ. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often for me. Well, you've got an account and a software developer talking, so I think <laughs> it's, there's, there's much EQ floating around. Um, so talking about your profitable, have you do you take dividends or have you taken dividends out of tender? Uh, I'm not sure exactly how we do it, what the mechanics are exactly, because we've got like multiple countries and all sorts of complicated structures. But like, yeah, we we get some sort of cash thing based right. on profit. Yeah, so you but, cash out in in terms of your salary, um, and yeah, and so I I think you mentioned that like you, broadly, broadly, yes, yes. So not exactly how much I don't know. Yeah, not 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 accountant speak. Yes, you you do get distributions, and what do you do with those distributions? So um, I mentioned Jake. You told me that you guys bought you buy other businesses outside of Tanda, right? Uh, we did help a friend of ours who uh, wanted to get into the fruit trade, uh, and we helped him uh, with a, like buy a fruit shop. Um, a fruit shop, like, interesting. Well, like a fruit like vegetable, a, like a fruit market, like, like a grocery store. store. Yeah. 
Um, it's probably the most interesting thing we've done outside of it. Well, interesting to us. I don't know interesting to anybody else. Hold up. Okay. So, so yeah, a guy, a friend comes to you. is like, hey, hey, I, I, I want to buy this fruit shop. Where is it? What, what fruit shop is it? Just like a, just a corner store fruit shop. Like, yeah, like? it's, uh, it's in Green Slopes. Yeah, that's, Brisbane Hill, that's my old, called, hunt, that's almost my stomping yeah, race. So I live in Green Slopes. It's called Rock and Roll. Um, okay, fuck I don't, Green Slopes. Yeah, I don't Rock and Roll. <laughs> yeah, pretty good fruit. Good I bakery. Good bakery. You should definitely yeah, buy that one if you don't. Yeah. Um, it's a good little bakery butcher and fruit shop all in one. Yeah. Um, all in it's a good little spot. Nice. So, we, like, we helped him with that, but that's been an interesting experience of like learning what a totally different business offer is. Like. <laughs> so different. Um, I can't think of any it's other. Very, very different it's, like, it's, it's almost like a cafe would be equivalent of, of a fruit shop more closely than, than a SaaS, in the SaaS business, I think. Like, it's yeah, uh, oh, completely yeah, different sure. economics. Um, Different. I mean, even the people you work with would be completely different. Your customers are different. Like, but yeah. If you, yeah, but like much simpler. If you're good at running, if you're a good operator, which this guy had experience in, where he worked at a butcher beforehand or something like that. Yeah, if you're a good operator, you'll definitely make a profit. And you kind of they, they don't they don't sell at a hundred times valuations of revenue like software companies do. So you can get into the fruit trade a bit more with a bit less. Um, cash which is yeah, good like two or three times so, profit probably or maybe less depending on the circumstances yeah, i think less from yeah probably like one time so it depends on the, the circumstances so you buy this free shop and well you, you i guess you're part of a free shop so i think it was yeah. Low, yeah yeah right that's amazing so i think we're still paying like we're still getting our loan basically paid back but yeah i have a feeling that in about a year's time it'll be in the in the clear yeah <laughs> so random do you do you shop there <laughs> Actually, I live very close to Green. So I, I live north of the river, so it's yeah, kind of yeah. going to get to. But I'm pretty sure Jake goes there all the Jake like exclusively eats it from the fruit shop. So I think that might be the main reason it's going so well. That's Jake's so cool. Spending, like, yeah, all his money there. That's awesome. I love that. That's a fruit shop so random. <laughs> so if anyone lives south of the river, go to Rock and Roll. Yeah, it's a, it's a good spot. I I I used to, I didn't go to the fruit shop um, because I I'm a tight ass. I go to Aldi, but um, the bakery next door is <laughs> great. Like really good pastries. Do you, do you eat the produce at Aldi? Yeah, I, do I don't mind it, but my wife doesn't let me. Well, we lived near an Aldi. She was like, "Oh, the meat there is no good." Or oh, the, the fish. I love fish. She's like, "Oh, the fish in Aldi is bad for you." Well, compared to what fish? Like uh, Woolies fish, or I guess <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we we eat salmon, but look, we don't eat a, lot, a great deal of fish. Um, I know it doesn't. Oh, yeah, I definitely right. I mean, I know I I, 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 I check my receipt every week. I, I actually I do I do chat to people about how much they spend on groceries, and we're 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 a lot less. We're a small family, but I, I, empirically yeah, we I spend bet. a lot less than a lot of people. Um, you got to go down to the other fish, man. I ba- I barbecued this barramundi last night. It was so good, delicious. Yeah, come around <laughs> sometime. I'll barbecue for you. Done. Sounds good. Um, so back to I guess the tech side. Um, so where as you know, we spoke about this. Where the last two years have been like kind of almost been a resetting of the the tech market or the tech bubble. A uh, mm-hmm. bunch of good talent have been laid off. I lots of because lots of startups have gone bust. Lots of redundancies. I imagine there will be more to come. Um, like if you and then, and, and then and then you combine that with like OpenAI and all this kind of MLM and AI sort of stuff popping up in the market. Like if you and you're 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 a software software guy. So if you hypothetically sold Tender tomorrow, like what would you be working on? It's a pretty good question. I don't know. I um I actually don't really. Know. I think I would probably take a long break and then figure something out. I think. Well, so. I don't know. I, like, obviously, I think what we're doing is really important, but it's not like I woke up one day when I was 21 and was passionate about being <laughs> a compliance system and how far it is. compliance for small businesses yeah. and cafes or cafe owners. But it's, it was a problem that we had, and it was like, and well, we, we abstractly had the access, we had access to the problem that we, we knew was theoretically a problem, and then it was something that Jake wanted us to do something about. And that's kind of what dragged me into it. And so, my hope is that that would just happen again. So, I would like to answer your question. Like, I don't know what it would, I would probably go start another business, but I would probably just wait for like, ideally for Jake or just someone to sort of like drag me into the next thing that we know is worth solving because it's a problem that we had or that, or that our customers had that we know very well or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So well, I'll, yeah. I think wait. like the, I mean, if you asked this question two years ago, everybody would tell you that they would go do something in crypto. 
Yeah. And exactly. obviously these days no one's saying, well, most people aren't saying that. <laughs> all, so, all, the, all the LinkedIn uh, gurus have, have changed their, their, their titles from like crypto NFTs to like AI now and chat GPT. It's quite yeah. funny. And I think the AI thing, we'll, we'll wait and see. I think even now versus three months ago, the like we're still just, we're still doing the same like text order completion that we were doing three months ago and it hasn't taken over the world as something predicted. So I'm not really sure how that's going to play out, but I think it is good to be aware of these things, but I think you can't really make them your identity. Mm. Um, when you like, as opposed to like having a problem that is worth solving and then taking some sort of technology and applying it to it. Yeah. Okay. So my hope is I would do that. Yeah. Well, let's just change the question. Like, what are you working on now? I guess. So what's, what, what's, what are you guys working yeah. on on Tanda? So we've, um, for a long time, we've just did workforce management, which is timesheeting, rostering, kind of everything that goes before payroll. Yeah. We just announced about a month ago that we're going to launch a payroll product as well. So oh, Tender okay. Payroll is right. Tender Payroll is, is live now. You can join the waitlist for it. Um, we're sort of rolling it out to a select waitlist of folks over the next few months, and we'll have a public release hopefully by the end of the year. We'll so is it payroll SaaS or is it a so a so or service a service payroll? It's a payroll SaaS. It's a it's a payroll SaaS. Oh, payroll SaaS. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Yeah. So you can. Everyone, every single customer of ours has some sort of payroll software. And basically, chances are they don't like it as much as they're going to like ours. So that's the, that's the offer. Um, we've got a few more products that are kind of not yet, not quite ready to launch or which I'm hoping to have go live late this year, I think. So broadly speaking, we're trying to launch more products. We've kind of spent a long time building this one and gotten pretty good at it. But what's exciting for me now is that there's obviously lots of other things that we can do for our customers and we can go and solve, we can go do a lot more stuff for them. So it's still in the employment space. So that's the main thing I've been working on. I mentioned at the start that, um, like right, right back at the start of the interview that I'm not CTO anymore. So I've got someone else, Leon, who's running like day to day technical operations or leading day to day technical operations. And I'm spending most of my time just working on getting these new products off the ground and trying to get the first few customers on board. and and then making them part of business as usual, yeah. which is actually like really, really fun. I'm enjoying that a lot more than I enjoyed leading a big team and doing all the operational stuff that I wasn't really that good at, but it had to be done. Pa- payroll and timesheets and rostering and compliance, that's the, the most boring like shit in any – like it does. it's not sexy, it's boring as hell, but – it's obviously a critical need that every small business mm. owner fakes, faces. And I, what I love about it is it's vertically integrated, right? Like every business needs this functionality or has yeah, this problem. it's pretty essential, right? It's and essential, I yeah. think I know when you say boring, I know, I know you I know you think boring is a good thing, but it's kind of like a jab that people throw at it as well. Like, oh, why would you do it so boring? But like, <laughs> no, it was both. I like, I, it is boring. Like a, a slogan we had a while ago that maybe we'll bring back one day is that we wanted to really – this, we ran a series of webinars called No Time to Tanda. And the idea was like, we want to show you how you can spend as little time as possible using Tanda because like ultimately no one actually wants to use Tanda if they don't have to. It's kind of like a necessary burden of, of employment. Yeah. Um, it's the best way to deal with the necessary evils of employment, but it's, it doesn't mean it's fun. So we tried pretty hard to sort of keep that mindset and like keep the product boring and efficient and minimal and only doing what you need and not doing anything you don't. And not getting in your way with like cute shit. And we don't always get that quite right, but we're trying to trying to do our best with that. So yeah, I think boring is kind of I mean it's it is a boring industry, but it's also like actually a strategy to be as boring as possible, I think. because um, like I don't know, I, I think old mate of the fruit shop does not he loves he loves running his fruit shop, but he doesn't really like using Tanda. But he'd like it even less if he was using a competitor. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a good way to put it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I rarely offer kind of praise to people. Um, I think it originates, well, I'm the account number one, I'm pretty, pretty matter of fact, but I think it originates from my, like, my Asian Chinese tiger mom parenting style. I'm, I'm half Singaporean Chinese, like half half Australian. But, we'll, but I don't want to make you too uncomfortable. 
Yeah, although the parenting style is like you're never good enough, like whatever you accomplish, it's like, mm. yeah, there's always a, a higher bar. But um, I mean, yeah, I so hate I'm European a- parents, so I can sympathize. Okay, you get it, you get it. But like, I actually genuinely have a ton of respect for you guys. I mean, you've you've managed to stay out of the media hype cycle, which you could have, you could easily do. I mean, you could have your face plus all of your face plus in AFR. Like, you could be on the the rich list quite easily based on kind of what you, what you've said. Forbes 30 under oh, 30, all that sort of shit. Like, that actually. Yeah. I didn't know if you know, and I, I don't know if this is like everyone's experience, but they just call you and ask you your net worth, and that's how they make the rich list. Yeah. No, you, how, I, many, how ridiculous is that? No, you know what? I That is a true story. So I remember. Have so you, you got Jane no, I haven't got the call. Um, I hope I never get the call. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, rip. Um, yeah. Get so wrecked. you know Jane Lou, the the CEO of Shopo. There's, there's some e-commerce business in oh, Shopo. No. They they sell like we you know we're guys. We we probably wouldn't know them, but they're basically any female listeners will will obviously know who Shopo is. They're like a e-commerce business that sell um, women's fashion, right? So yeah. story is you know she was this uh, she worked at KPMG as an accountant in uh, doing whatever, and she's actually she's also Asian. No, I don't know, like whatever no, I can say that anyway. So. Kind of like she got a job as There's a no cat, typical like around. T- t- typical Asian like story. Parents are like go go get a corporate job. She's working there, hated her life. Decided to like um, she was selling clothes on the weekend markets, and then decided to do it online yeah. and blah blah. Built built this. I think I think they were doing up to hundred mil revenue anyway. So I think I think maybe four or five years ago she was featured on like the AFR Young Rich list where she was worth apparently fifty million dollars, etc. And there was this thing that went around where she was basically I think she posted on Instagram or or Facebook where she was saying that hey I didn't actually sign up to this rich list i got no permission number one the number's wrong like whatever you report is completely incorrect because my, yeah. my company's not worth 50 million dollars probably a lot less maybe or it could be more i don't know but less um they didn't get my permission to post this shit and and i also look at so that, that's intriguing i looked at the list and every year i read that list a few of those people i know like just through networks or just through yeah and i'm like that's bullshit 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 right all these lists are just manufactured it's all just kind of made up right but the made upness was made particularly obvious when they called our office and asked us. And we were just like, <laughs> oh, we don't really know. And also, I don't know, who cares? Yeah, and who I cares? guess that wasn't really, that's not like, that's not a number. So it didn't make the list. Exactly. And, and they're, all, they're all made up on like, it's manufactured based on, oh, yeah, you, you run, um, I think the last one's like, hey, this this startup raised $100 million, the billion dollar valuation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the founder probably owns at least 20% of the cap table. So therefore, they're, yeah, they're, like they're worth $200 million. And for public companies, of course, it actually make, like, can be yes, it, verified. It can be, but exactly. For any like private venture, it's kind of just made up. <laughs> exactly. And all these valuations are made up by, by, by you know, it's a liquid tech startup. It's all paper, paper based, as you said earlier. So none of it eventuates. Part of me really make up a ridiculous number and see, how, see if they're willing to run with it. But the smarter part of me doesn't do that. That's <laughs> uh, great. Anyway, the point Paul is making is that all of you have kept a pretty low profile, which is which is awesome because I think it's um yeah it's refreshing to see um, tech founders especially just just kind of doing what you're doing, uh, which which is great. Thank you. You're very kind. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, just to close off, so you started a newsletter. So, I noticed you've just been a bit more active on kind of sharing your personal journey or your lessons learned or whatnot, even what you call it. Why? Like, I mean, why are you doing that? Funny story. Well, it's a pretty good question. Why? I was, I'm going to say about a year ago, I was getting pretty burnt out. And I'd just been doing this for a long time and it was kind of like, uh, I was getting a bit over it. Um, I took a lot of time off. I had a kid. It's also meant a lot of time off. And I was kind of, Penciled to go back to work a few times and just kept, kept kicking the can down the road. And then I'm not really sure exactly what my thought process was, but I just kind of felt like I found it really helpful for me just to write about, I, had, I don't know if it's the right term or not, but it kind of felt like the good old days and the very, very early days. Because I really wanted to start another business for a while. I thought like, that's what I really wanted to do. I thought I'd done this one for 10 years. Let's go do something else. And so I started writing and reflecting and thinking about but it was like when we started and some people seem to like it. So I kept doing it. But one of the things I kind of observed from doing that is that there's a lot of glamour around like, Oh, you're starting a business and it's exciting. And you're it's like us against the world and you're fucking the system somehow fucking the system with your B2B SaaS product. Or whatever. <laughs> but 
<laughs> there's also it's also just like a heck of a grind and most of the most of the work is really just doing things that aren't very fun but are very necessary like yeah. building an in-house billing system which is not really like no one goes into business to build their own billing system but i did one because it had to be done so obviously you forget those things a little bit so I, as much as i enjoyed writing and still really do it's kind of like it's also helped me realize kind of the benefits of having this really strong foundation now that I can build on top of and do more interest wants new products without going back and redoing everything and starting again from scratch. And the other thing I realized is I we for a little while for a long time we've thought about trying to do a small amount of angel investing because as I said, I don't think boot shopping is for everyone. It's different for every person. And so I sort of did a little bit of work on that and tried to figure out how to get some lead flow and got okay at that. But then like I don't know. I was kind of, I was listening to pitches and meeting people who were starting up and whatever. And I just, a lot of the time was like, man, I feel like the people that I work with are kind of more interesting and more fun to work with than the random people on the internet that have reached out to me. And that's not, not universally true, but in many cases. And so I just thought, well, you know, I've already got this really good team inside this really good company. Why do I want to go and throw everything away and start again? So that's kind of led me back to, you know, I also just taking time off was helpful. So I'm sort of back at it now and feeling much better about things. Like like writing and reflecting is always therapeutic in its own way, and it was very helpful for me. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's a really mature uh, mature decision. I, and I guess staying the master of your own destiny by not taking outside money is that you you can make that decision, right? It's like there's no pressure to to make yeah to to do anything like selling the company because of someone else. It's like well, it's pretty sur- and it's like a testament to everyone else who works here that you know founders can get jack of it and take six months or more off work and the company gets much better in their absence and that's kind of i mean that's kind of bad for the ego sometimes but it's overall it's a real testament to the team and and to the company that that we have and that everyone has built for each other so it's really really good and i think it's it's an awesome thing to be part of and to build from and to build on top of yeah that's that's so cool that's really cool yeah where can people find your newsletter thing well, the, hopefully there'll the be a link in the show notes. But you yeah, can, okay. it's my surname, so geeklesby.substack.com, but sometimes I forget how to spell it. Yeah, I just call it Alex G. Um, we'll be in the show notes. Um, uh, we'll link you there. Awesome. Thanks for your time, Alex. Thanks, man. That was fun. So there you go. Plan to think about. Would you go it alone or would you take that sweet, sweet VC money? Next time, we're continuing our theme of mergers and acquisitions and I'll be covering off the art of deal structuring. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Stark Naked Numbers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. To learn more about the secrets of uncovering your financials, unlocking your cash and unleashing your profits, visit starknakednumbers.com and follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Jason Andrew and this has been the Stark Naked Numbers podcast.